Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Premier of Ontario has pulled back some COVID-19 protocol in the hotspots of Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa. The Prime Minister says he does not want an election at this point. Well, then why did he prorogue government? And after an 18-month investigation, Boeing and the FAA have been hammered over the 737 MAX plane crashes. We'll update you. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Yesterday a kid threw up in the schoolyard. You should have seen everyone scatter. You'd think he was radioactive. He's fine, everyone. He's fine. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I think that's two intros on bodily functions. I'm going to get a note from the boss. You know, the odd one here and there, that's one thing. But two days in a row, he's not going to like that. Uh, anyway, clearly we have to rope the man back in. we got to pull little Kurt a little. <laughs> got to get him by the reins and pull him in a little bit. He's out there in the trenches, man, at school. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900. CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson show on the air. Great to have you here for another day. Feel free to read the commentary. It's waiting for you on the website at 900CHML.com, Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, as I mentioned, gatherings in Ontario for hotspots may soon be limited due to uh, the rising of the cases. Uh, and as I mentioned, those three key hotspots. Let's bring in Tom Koch, Professor of Medical Geography at the University of British Columbia uh, and has many books on this subject, including Disease Maps, uh, Disease Maps uh, Epidemics on the Ground and is with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. And yourself. So uh, obviously we're starting to see uh, across Canada these numbers tick up a bit. Uh, we in Ontario, we're seeing it out west as well. Uh, here in Ontario, they've started to roll, or they're going to announce later today, they're, they're rolling back uh, some of the social gathering uh, conditions right. in key hotspots like Toronto and Peel and Oshawa. Is this what's needed? How do you, uh, you're obviously an expert in tracing these sorts of things. How do you attack something like this? Okay, first... Uh, let me just say that there is no rule book here. We don't know precisely for any one virus what is going to be needed. We can't say 15 is the right person, right. 20 is the wrong person. It varies for each epidemic in a different stages. So some of this is by gum and by golly of necessity. And there are two things which are happening. One we had, after Labor Day, some super spreader events with large groups getting together. We opened to a certain level and found people meeting but also exceeding that. And then we found an increase in the number of cases, especially in specific age groups like the 20 to 40. So the feeling is if we want to bring the numbers down, if we want to drop the number of new infections, and remember, those only come uh, maybe 10 days after the event. What we have to do is restrict the number of people to what we think will work, which is, you know, 20 to 10 or whatever, and see if that helps. Because the greatest increase has been in these groups, that is the younger rather than the older and rather than in the, uh, the precarious workers, that's where the focus is now. 
Are we to, you talked about this is the residual of Labor Day. Are, with back to class happening, back to school happening this week, uh, can we expect a jump in what we're seeing at universities and such two weeks from now? Right. I'm not sure that what we're seeing now isn't already. The Labor Day events have passed. What I'm saying is these events have sparked increases, right. and they are worrisome because we don't want to have an increase in cases and in serious cases. Going back to school, the, I would separate the universities from the primary and even secondary schools. Universities have large groups of really quite independent students who are used to, especially in their freshman week, getting together, partying, having a lot of fun. And we've seen that on the news. We've seen these events. And we assume that those larger events with a lot of people getting together, partying, drinking, hugging, is going to basically create more cases in a group that we thought was going to be less likely to be infected. So mm-hmm. there's the universities, and can the universities control the students, and how responsible will those young adults be? In the schools, uh, primary and secondary, we have a much more controlled environment where we have the schools working very hard at distancing in the schools, creating this mix of online and in-class So I think the likelihood of rapid spread in those environments is less than what we have seen at the university environment. Uh, uh, Andrew Horbath of the Ontario NDP said that if we're going to restrict indoor gatherings now to 10 and outdoors to 25, how do you justify having more than 10 in schools and is now demanding that uh, classes of 15 uh, go right the way across Ontario? Is that the right plan of attack? I'm not quite sure. Neither is Mr. Horvath and nobody else is. But the answer I would give is in the schools, where we have the very controlled setting of the desks, of marching people through the hallways, keeping them in a room with the cleaning, is a different environment from the other. And so while we think that it may be safe to have the students at this level, having people in a restaurant or having people in another meeting place without those physical restrictions and without that monitoring, that is, without a teacher, uh, would be different. So... Right. There is no rule here. The idea is that these are two different environments, and they're now trying two different rule sets for those environments. So I think he's a little unfair in making that comment, because I see them as very distinct situations. And viral spread in these cases is always situational. So, and obviously, we're, you know, you're talking to us from uh, British Columbia, I believe. Actually, and, I'm in Toronto today. Oh, you're in Toronto today. Okay, but normally out of British Columbia. But obviously, we're seeing different scenarios across the country. The one common denominator is we are seeing increases. Uh, from a national level, and I guess from both a provincial or local level, what should we be doing now as we're seeing these these numbers tick up? Well, I think there's two levels to this answer. One... We have found over the course of this national epidemic certain types of sites which were especially infected. That was the nursing homes. Now we're worried about some of the First Nations, uh, the the meatpacking plants. And so we have paid and are paying more attention to sites and universities where we know the congregates of people in close environments have created an opportunity for viral spread. 
So we're doing well with that. We also know that there is COVID tiredness. People want to get out. They want to get together. They're getting a little loose. We want to impress on them the need to, through the fall at least, to be careful, to use the mask, the social distancing, the hand washing for their own safety and for the safety of others. And some people are getting a little antsy with that. Never mind the, the people who say masks don't work. Well, they're wrong, and we'll forget them. So at the moment, the officials who are basically doing this daily, and remember, I'm not the one who's sitting there with all the charts and tables. I'm the guy who stands behind them and sort of peers over their shoulder and says, oh, well, sort of like you, actually. Hmm. At any rate, I'm saying from my background and understanding, understanding the concern about the coming flu season, they're trying to fine-tune the numbers. And when we have a situation like this, which is new, we don't know enough about this virus. We don't have 10 years of precedent. And even with influenza, we get fooled. It's a matter of slow, sort of starting tight, loosening up, retightening a bit if that's too much, and slowly trying to bring the levels down to where the re- reproduction rate becomes one, that it's for each case only one more can be infected, and then below that, which means that the infection will diminish. That's the goal, and it's a month, it will take months to achieve it, as long as we don't also have this confluence of a number of people coming in with influenza at the same time. So I think what they're trying to do, and we have to have some sympathy for the officials, is, as I said, started very tight, loosen, loosen some more. We want our businesses to be in business if they can. Retighten to the point where we think we can control the virus. And then over time, as that is working, see when we can loosen up again in each one of these environments. But each environment is different. And remember, our cities are very different. So a lot so, of this has to be, become specific not to the province or to the region, but also sometimes just to the city. So now comes the fine-tuning. Um, we're about to hear, we think, later on a press conference, uh, bubbles or sorry, gatherings indoor reduced to 10, uh, outdoor 25. These are social gatherings. This does not include business. Is this a good first step? Do we need to do more to get ahead of this? I don't think it's a first step. I think it's one in a number of steps we have taken and we're taking. Mm-hmm. Is this an appropriate, I'd say, is this an appropriate step? And I'd say yes. Should we be doing this much? Should we be doing more? Uh, there are teams of people looking at that. They're trying to balance strictness in terms of virus transmission with giving as much latitude to businesses and community gatherings as they can. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody has a better answer that we can say definitively it should be 12 people or it should be 8 people. So I think that this is a necessary step, and we will see in two to three weeks whether or not it was sufficient, it was a little too much, or the little more needs to be done. Wow, it just goes to show how much we're learning every day. Tom Koch has been with us, Professor of Medical Geography at the University of British Columbia uh, in Toronto today. Tom, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Always helpful. Glad to help. Thank you. Uh, just uh, to recap what uh, Premier Doug Ford said in his daily news conference today, uh, changing the protocol, rolling back 
the uh, numbers for social gatherings these do gatherings these do not include uh, weddings or uh, banquet events banquet facility events restaurants or such but private parties uh, which seem to be where the hot spots are starting tomorrow in Toronto Peel region in Ottawa outdoor gatherings will be restricted to a maximum of 25 people and indoor gatherings will be restricted to a maximum of 10 people. This includes social events and gatherings like private parties in your backyard or barbecues held in your home, backyards and parks. At this time, it does not include events gatherings held in staffed business or facilities such as movie theaters, restaurants, banquet halls, gyms or convention centers. Existing cross-province rules will continue to apply. At all times, people must continue to maintain physical distancing of at least two meters with those outside their social circle. We're also introducing amendments to the Reopening Act Ontario Act to set a minimum fine of $10,000 for the organizers of illegal social gatherings. This is the highest fine anywhere in the entire country. In addition to the $750 fine for individuals who break the rules and show up to these parties. This is a serious situation, folks. We will throw the book at you if you break the rules. And we can't afford to let a few rule breakers reverse all the hard work and progress the people of Ontario have made over the past six months. It's just not fair to the vast majority of people who are following the rules and thinking about others. Uh, also, uh, lots of questions in regard to the schools. Andrea Horbath, leader of the NDP, provincially came out today and said, uh, if you're going to restrict things to 10 uh, indoors for social gatherings, uh, you should be you know, bringing down classrooms to 15, which is still five more than that, so I don't understand the, the relation there. Uh, so it demanded that all classes in Ontario be reduced to 15 students, which again seems bizarre since this is really only affecting the hotspots near Toronto uh, and Ottawa and Peel and such. And the health minister uh, pointing out, uh, and the chief medical officer, that uh, parties in the backyard are a lot different than the classroom. <laughs> And that the classroom setting is very much restricted, very much in a cohort, uh, very much supervised. Uh, there's there's rules and regulations going into the building that you know you have to adhere to, whereas in a backyard party or a field party or wherever these things are going on, uh, street parties, uh, you, you, there's obviously no, there's no protocol. It's not supervised. So uh, comparing the schools to these social gatherings, uh, medical officials have said is apples and oranges. So uh, that's where we're sitting right now. Uh, and uh, another interesting point is that the numbers that we're seeing now, and they're talking about 28 students testing positive at Western University uh, in London, which again, the largest cohort, 20 to 40 year olds, 67% of the new cases are in fact uh, young people. So uh, the numbers we're seeing spike up now are more a result of the long weekend in, at Labor Day. So these numbers in the next week or two could go even higher, something to be aware of. As uh, all officials are saying, please adhere, continue to adhere to the rules, make sure you are social distancing, make sure you're washing your hands, wearing a mask, uh, and well, you know the protocol by now. Uh, obviously, concerns uh, in regard to COVID-19 cases rising, as we're hearing, these. this is pretty much the fallout from uh, Labor Day. 
Uh, and again, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens in the next week or two as uh, the university kids and such are uh, dealing with their issues uh, as well. And you might remember when this all started uh, at the very beginning, it was devastating to uh, seniors' homes, long-term care homes, and that is it was certainly the focus of this way back at the beginning. And, you know, thankfully, it seems a lot of that has been put under is under control. Uh, but now with the rise in cases, uh, we're starting to see an uptick again in these facilities. Let's bring in Jane Medes, barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly and is with us now. Jane, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. So uh, it seemed that, uh, you know, once we got over the bump of this and, and what happened in the uh, in senior care and such that we, we finally got a handle on it. How concerned are you with this uh, new rise in cases that we could be back to where we were? I'm very concerned. Um, you know, I, I think that there were a number of reasons uh, why things were able to get under control, some of which had to do with the increase in... Uh, staffing in the long-term care homes from some other uh, sectors. Uh, and unfortunately, the long-term care homes have lost a lot of that extra assistance, either from hospitals, from nursing students who are now back at school, education workers who are now back at work. Um, and I don't think things have changed that much. And we're already seeing outbreaks, like in Ottawa, they have a, a large outbreak. So, uh, you know, I'm very concerned because I'm not sure that we're in the position that we want to be um, moving forward. Uh, are, are homes more ready for this now? In other words, you know, I mean, when this first started, obviously nobody knew what the heck it even was. Now, uh, obviously more protocol in place. Uh, is it different this time? I think there certainly are some differences. We're certainly seeing some changes in the, um, you know, in the makeup of some of the older homes. Uh, they're not admitting people to the three and four bedrooms, but that doesn't mean that there aren't three and four bedrooms. Hopefully we have the PPE issue resolved and that homes will have uh, enough PPE, although we still hear about homes that, you know, ration it or lock it up. Um, so access to PPE still continues to be a problem. But I think at the end of the day, the biggest problem is going to be the staffing. Um, if you don't have enough workers to provide the level of care that is required in long-term care, they're going to take shortcuts. And one of those shortcuts they're going to take is around infection control, and that's my fear. Uh, it seems in, in there's been some complaints that uh, a lot of the places, or no, I shouldn't say a lot, but some of the places that have had reoccurrence are repeat offenders. They were they were hot spots uh, the first time out. Are you confident that? Uh, and we remember it, towards the end, it, it wasn't all homes. It was a certain group that were that seemed to be repeat offenders. Are you concerned that those issues with those specific centers have not been dealt with? Well, I think there's been attempts to deal with it, but, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, if there are sort of systemic problems in homes, it's not going to be fixed overnight. Um, a lot of those homes did have a lot of extra help, and I think the problem is that they're now back to their regular management, their regular staffing, and so I think that, you know, uh, this is a very people-oriented, obviously, business, and so it's not yeah. that you can just retool a machine. You have to retool people, and that's a harder thing to do.
Do you think uh, we're going to obviously we're uh, we're carrying the press conference of the premier coming up in in an hour or so. And they're going to roll back. Uh, uh, so uh, roll back uh, groups as far as meeting indoors and, and, and outdoors and such. Do you think we're going to start to see or we will start to see restrictions with within nursing homes, especially around visitation? Again, uh, I have a parent that's that's in a uh, not necessarily a, a long term care home, but certainly a seniors home. And uh, obviously the protocol is really ramped up. Do you think we're going to get to the point where, again, uh, residents have to remain in their units and much like we were during the beginning of this? Do you think we'll get back there? I'm hoping not. I hope that there can be a new plan. Um, We've had 72,000 people in long-term care who were detained since uh, March um, and not able to see family. I think that that cannot continue. Um, These are not prisoners. And uh, we have to figure out a way in, in, uh, to, to keep them safe, uh, but also to provide them with uh, a quality of life. Um, and, you know, restricting visitors uh, so that there's none or restricting them from going outside is not the answer. We have to ensure that there's proper PPE, that they're taking proper precautions. But I don't think that continuing to detain people or prevent their loved ones from seeing them is, is necessarily the best way to go. Um, certainly, if there's an outbreak, there's going to have to be some rolling back. I mean, you know, you have to ensure that people are cared for safely. But this sort of massive um, detention of the whole system is very problematic. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, it was just anecdotally, I remember hearing stories from uh, seniors, not in homes, but just in their own home and such. Once the kids were going back to school after the long weekend, uh, that was going to be the last time seeing them for a while because they were worried with the kids going back to school and such. Any concerns with kids coming into senior homes? Um, you know, that if Children are going into seniors' homes, or they do have to take precautions, just like anyone else. So children certainly can go into seniors' homes, and it would be the same precautions as anyone else. Um, Children under 14 have to be accompanied by an adult. Um, But other than that, I don't think that, you know, as long as as everyone follows the proper protocols, um, you know, I think that's what we can do. I think that depriving people of uh, visiting with their family um, for the rest of their lives is not... The way to go. Uh, any uh, advice you have for those who may have relatives or family in uh, these sorts of centers? Uh, obviously, the protocol is, you know, as, as we see things tick up, we've, we're all being reminded again that we have to adhere to this strict protocol. But, but what, uh, what, what, what do you want uh, people or family members to take away from this who have seniors in this situation? So I think that they need to educate themselves as to what are the rules. Um, some of the homes are putting in their own set of rules, and it's very problematic. So the government has, you know, set out guidelines, and many homes are sort of trying to restrict on that. And I think we have to push back on that because, you know, yes, COVID is a very serious disease. It is, it de- you know, it absolutely devastated our long-term care homes. Um, but the people who are left were also devastated by the lack of visits, by the lack of contact. Um, and I think we have to make sure that, you know, the homes aren't restricting people too much. Um, and, you know, people need to do proper protocols. Don't go in if you're sick. Um, wear the proper masking. You know, do all the things that we need to do in order to keep everyone safe. 
um, and ensure that the staff is doing that. Um, and if they're not, um, that should be, you know, if people are seeing that, they need to report it if they see people who aren't um, properly masking or whatever while they're in the home. You bring up an interesting point, Jane, about homes uh, restricting people from coming in. Uh, is that an issue? Uh, because obviously, if you're running a home, you could see, man, we've got to, you know, we don't want this to happen again. We're going to tighten things up. Um, but th- there's a fine balance there. That's right. And, you know, there's also legal issues of whether or not you can actually detain people like this. Um, so that's why, you know, I mean, I think there's a real difference when there's an outbreak versus when there's not. Um, but, you know, the homes are very risk averse, um, you know, and I understand that. Um, but you can't do that and jeopardize the mental health of your residents, which are just as important. Jane Medes has been with us, barrister and solicitor, in, uh, institutional advocate, advocacy center for the elderly. Let me ask you one more question, Jane. Where do you think homes will be one month from now? Um, I mean, I think we're going into a second wave. That's the way it's looking with the numbers. Um, you know, one would hope that would not happen, but my fear is that it will. I think we have, uh, you know, the kids going back to school, um, the issues with that, with the class sizes and everything. Um, and, you know, it's their parents who are working in long-term care um, and grandparents sometimes who are working in long-term care. So we have to be really vigilant, um, and I really fear that they're, you know, we're really not prepared. Jane Medes has been with us, Advocacy Center for the Elderly, concerned about a second outbreak in long-term care homes, very much similar to what started uh, at the beginning of COVID-19. Jane, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and talk federally. Uh, The Prime Minister says an election at this point uh, would not be irresponsible, uh, but that he doesn't want one to happen, which is quite a a bizarre scenario uh, when you think about it, because uh, uh, he basically came out and said yesterday after the three-day retreat, uh, in Quebec with his uh, his cabinet and such that uh, they do not want an election. The opposition does not want an election. So uh, that being said, it wouldn't be irresponsible for us to hold an election because we have the capability of doing that. We certainly do, but I think people want to see those capabilities put towards fighting COVID-19, uh, not uh, the future of the liberal minority government. Uh, it's fascinating that he's taken that tone now because my first question is why prorogue government then? Uh, because the whole idea behind prorogation uh, back in August when the curve was flattened and we were down below 100 uh, cases in Ontario, it was all about having a new mandate and, and putting forward this new dynamic green plan for uh, for uh, the country. And if that triggers democracy, so be it. Uh, again, almost trying to trigger and almost trying to force the opposition into calling an election, because obviously during times of a pandemic or crisis like this, usually leaders see a spike in their numbers. Uh, Obviously, Trudeau trying to take advantage of that. Now saying nobody wants an election. Well, again, why do we have prorogation if there is no election in the future, the immediate future anyway? And could this not all have been done through uh, the normal process? It certainly makes it look as if the reason this is happening, or, or happened, meaning prorogation, was simply to scuttle the conversation in regard to the Wee scandal. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks. 
So have we, is it me or, or have we experienced a change in tone regarding an election after the September 23rd throne speech from the prime minister? Seems like a different tone than when he prorogued government. Uh, I guess. I mean, I, I think throughout there's really been little chance that we end up in an election. Uh, I mean, really, the the official argument about proroguing a parliament was about being able to prepare this new and bold approach to governing. Uh, you know, he would have been elected a year ago, but the world had changed so much. He hadn't foreseen a $300 billion deficit this year when we were having that election campaign last year, and so he needed to put forward that, that new program. Um, I mean, I think what has changed really is uh, that the boldness of that program seems to have shrunk, at least in most telling, uh, between August and uh, here we are in mid-September. Why has that happened? I suspect he's done a bunch of polling. Uh, I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, Mr. Trudeau isn't a, a very bold person. Uh, he's sort of the oldest young prime minister we've had in the sense of not really wanting to strike out that much in new directions. Uh, I mean, we've seen that, for instance, with his climate plan, which looks a lot like Stephen Harper's climate plan, you know, despite a promise of difference. Uh, you know, he was the one who would be willing to run deficits, but it's not like the, the spending has actually shown up yet in places like... Uh, uh, housing where he said it would. So I think part of it is that Mr. Trudeau really doesn't, uh, I mean, it's not a, a persona that's really that comfortable with him being the bold leader. And I suspect a lot of people around him said, well, there's a lot of risks of really striking out in those directions, including his own coalition. Uh, there's part of the Liberal coalition that would be very much in favor of uh, bold spending on social priorities and on a green transition but there's also a lot of people who voted for Mr. Trudeau in the in the suburbs of Toronto in that last election who uh, like the Liberals because they are much uh, more careful with the public's money than they assume that the NDP might be, for instance, that they like uh, a centrist uh, government that's maybe not that drawn to social conservative issues that they saw with Mr. Scheer, but that would be relatively tight with the public money. And uh, that piece of the Liberal coalition uh, would be in danger, I think, if Mr. Trudeau was was too bold in his uh, relaunch of his mandate. So uh, what is the reason for proroguing government? As you said, going back to uh, August, the, the whole idea was we didn't anticipate this, we have to set out a new plan. But if you're setting out a new plan that is that dynamic, it is going to trigger an election. So in the end, are we not going to end up with what a minority government would have ended up with in the first place? What was the purpose of proroguing the government if it's not to trigger another election and a new mandate? Well, I think it was a cynical act to escape the questioning around uh, we. (laughs) Uh, To me, uh, Mr. Trudeau really wanted to shut down those parliamentary committees that uh, were keeping this uh, scandal front of mind for Canadians, um, you know, with new revelations coming out uh, most days. Uh, I think that was his main interest in just shutting that down uh, and having a chance to start new. I'm not sure that there was a whole lot of electoral calculus in that. Uh, I think Mr. Trudeau is pretty confident that uh, the three, you know, that he needs the three parties that are opposed to him to vote against him to trigger an election. And that, you know, there aren't that many issues on which uh, the Conservatives, the Bloc, and the NDP agree. Uh, And so I think he feels that he can put something out there, and one of the other parties will agree uh, to keep his government alive. I mean, that's the kind of confidence, I think, that's meant that he hasn't consulted much with the other parties from all intents and purposes. Uh, 
The other parties are saying that they haven't received a call from the Prime Minister even to discuss what might need to be in the throne speech, or perhaps more importantly in the subsequent budget, uh, if one of them was to continue to support his government. I mean, you could take that to say he's kind of he's setting up an election by taking a devil-may-care attitude, but I think it's more uh, just a, a self-confidence maybe a bit of an arrogant self-confidence that one of the parties will have to support him so that he doesn't have to do anything else in terms of you know, broadening the consensus around what he's doing. We were all expecting some, and there's a lot of emphasis put on this throne speech, uh, we were all expecting some new direction, some bold new uh, steps for for the country, but now with no election, in other words, if you don't want to trigger election, you're certainly going to pull all of that back, and now with no election, it does seem very obvious or, or and well, it does 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 it to Canadians that the whole reason for the prorogation it was really not about a, a new direction because we're going to end up with the same thing otherwise it will be voted down. Uh, this was all about covering up the wee scandal, pushing it off to the back burners. Yeah, I how is so. how are Canadians going to react to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a bold new direction. I mean, at least the the emphasis on a green transition and on rebuilding income security programs actually wouldn't trigger an election in the context where you have an NDP uh, that would be likely to support those or would be very hard-pressed to vote against them. Um, but, yeah, that doesn't change the fact that it's about trying to hide the wee scandal in this instance. Uh, the Prime Minister going to meet with the leaders today and, 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 and consult with them on this. What would that process be like? How much time would they be spending? What would they be talking about? Is there anything to really gain here? Not a great deal. I mean, it depends a lot on the personality of leaders. Uh, I don't get the sense that Mr. Trudeau has a time of day for the opposition leaders, so I suspect it will be a bunch of stiff photo ops, essentially, and and pretty brief conversations. Uh, You know, when when Mr. Harper was prime minister in a minority situation, I mean, the conversations were still pretty brief, but they can be, you know, strange moments where uh, the leaders who don't really talk to one another very often uh, get a chance to communicate uh, a variety of things. I mean, famously, you know, Jack Layton showed up to meet uh, Prime Minister Harper, and his big emphasis was on uh, an apology for residential uh, school survivors. This would have been, what, 2006, before that went forward. So, uh, you know, sometimes there can be some strange moments where uh, leaders, you know, find things outside of the immediate moment that they can work together on. But for the most part, in this instance, where I don't think Mr. Trudeau is really afraid of, of losing the confidence of the House, I don't think he has much interest in, in listening to what the other parties have to say. Uh, obviously, most think the NDP will give him what he needs in order to push this through. Uh, what will the NDP get out of this? What will keep them happy to keep us from going to the polls? Well, I think at this instance, uh, I mean, reading what Mr. Singh has said today, uh, I think the NDP is not even that confident about the throne speech. Uh, he's already trying to move the goalposts to say that a throne speech is empty words. What we really have to see is a budget. Uh, I mean, there, I mean, Mr. Singh hasn't had a very clear bottom line. Uh, you know, he has a list of about 12 things that he thinks are important to him, ranging from a green transition uh, to certain forms of uh, investment in uh, social housing, public transportation. Uh, you know, the list is long. So, uh, I don't think Mr. Trudeau actually has to do a lot for there to be something that Mr. Singh can claim as a victory for the NDP and what they push the Liberals to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really, there's, there's a, enough reasons why the NDP doesn't want an election at the moment, particularly uh, given the fact that it's, you know, within a year of the last election and they have debts to pay off before they could even imagine running a campaign. 
that will you know lead them to find something to claim as a solution. I mean, the real the real question would be more: Would the would the, Mr. Trudeau put a bunch of poison pills in his uh, in his throne speech of things that would be very difficult for the NDP to vote in favor of as a way of pushing them to potentially go to an election? But uh, again, I, I think at this stage, people are sufficiently cynical, given the nature of the prorogation, are cynical about Mr. Trudeau's intentions that any attempt to engineer the defeat of his government would would rebound against him. With people saying, "Why are you forcing this election?" In this pandemic time well again coming out and saying yesterday i don't want an election it's kind of funny i don't want an election i don't want an election i don't want an election yet somehow we end up in an election um who will who will trigger this then who will trigger the election if obviously uh the prime minister doesn't want to look uh, you know obviously can't canadians do not want an election right now and i and I, he perhaps he overstated that way back when um, now he's saying, obviously, he doesn't want one. Uh, he, he, they, n- no party wants that on their shoulders uh, as we head as we're in the midst of a pandemic. Well, they were the ones that called the election. So who will who will trigger that if it does happen? Well, I, I really don't think it's likely to happen. I mean, obviously, you can have Sarajevo in 1914, but uh, I think at this stage we're unlikely to see an election for probably at least another year. So does that mean that the throne speech really won't be that monumental if it keeps everybody happy? Yeah. I mean, I I think in many ways we wouldn't have expected much out of the throne speech except for uh, the fact that uh, the Trudeau government was trying to mislead Canadians about the real reason of prorogation. It wasn't about trying to hide the scandal. No, we we need to do this big new thing. Uh, Normally we wouldn't have expected a big new thing. In, in a new throne speech. And so, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, it will be a bit of a, well, not that, not that important moment uh, in, the, in the life of this government. I mean, what will be much more important will be the budget. Uh, first, to know where we're at in terms of the spending to, to deal with the crisis, but also what is the government's plan to uh, sustain an economic recovery and will it be able to achieve other goals that are important, you know, as we see the wildfires in the West and so on? Uh, can we also make progress on some of the other big challenges that are facing us down the road? Can Justin Trudeau provide something uh, in this throne speech that justifies prorogation? No. I, I mean, I guess if there was a, a series of bold new departures, that had required uh, an important investment of bureaucratic time in the last four weeks to prepare, uh, you know, as there's plans put into place for really bold new programs, then maybe maybe that case could be made. But again, uh, you know, the prorogation is a cynical thing. Uh, I don't think most Canadians were paying much attention to it uh, or will be that concerned about it one way or the other. But no, certainly uh, to make the case that there was uh, a need to devote all the capacities of the government to preparing this, this speech and the, the more to the point after the speech, the, uh, the laws, the legislation that will put it into place, the budgetary planning that would enable to put uh, these things into place. Unless that's shown, no, well, the, the cynicism of the prorogation should be clear to all. Uh, so you're thinking this will not trigger an election, uh, everybody will play nice, you referred to the budget, when will we see that budget? Uh, is that where the trigger will be? Well, I suspect it becomes a harder moment for opposition parties to support the government when there's a pretty clear dollar and cents commitment or lack of commitment to a number of priorities. 
so a throne speech is is a bunch of words. Uh, it can be quite airy. It can please a lot of different groups. A budget does become a bit more complicated. But again, there, I mean, we we would have normally come through a budget in the spring had it not been for the pandemic, and I presume the bloc would have supported it. Again, on the basis that in a minority situation, especially with a relatively fresh government, uh, you don't want to be the party that brings it down and and cause an an election that Canadians maybe feel is not warranted. So I think similarly with the next budget, there will be a way where either the bloc or the NDP find a way to say, well, there's enough here to allow this government to keep going uh, at least for another year or at least a half year in terms of, of staying in power. So I suspect there will be, again, a bit more brinkmanship and a bit more of negotiation because the threat of an election is maybe what forces the government to the table to listen to the views of the opposition parties. Um, but I think there will also be plenty of indication that the opposition parties don't want to go. So a uh, throne speech coming down in less than a week. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservatives, uh, he's tested positive. The Bloc, they pretty much tested positive. How does this change things? Uh, well, I think it probably changes things around uh, the issue of how they're going to hold this parliament. I mean, the Conservatives were very adamant that it needed to be just a regular parliament held in Ottawa in person. Um, again, with with the people testing positive, but also with a huge outbreak in uh, in Ottawa recently, uh, the the wisdom of flying people back and forth from Ottawa to to attend Parliament, I think, uh, deserves to be questioned. So we may see a bit more of this hybrid feature where you have a number of people sitting in the chamber, but where other uh, members of Parliament uh, are able to participate and vote remotely. Uh, do you see this? Uh, I remember as the 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 pandemic started, this was a massive issue. You know, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. Have we got all of this settled? Can we figure out how to run a virtual parliament now? I mean, have we not crossed those hurdles? Yeah, I think we have crossed many of those hurdles. The question is, when do you uh, when do you stop running the virtual parliament? Uh, the, I think the Conservatives have been of the view that. Uh, Parliament doesn't really work properly unless everyone's in the room, and I think there's a good case to be made that we want to return to uh, our way of holding Parliament as we did in the past. Um, You don't get the capacity for parliamentarians to compromise, uh, to work out their issues, uh, you know, off-camera, behind the scenes, in the many different ways that they meet and have uh, capacity to, to deliberate together when you're in a remote situation. So there's a desire to go back, but I think the conservative rush that we should get back there now is probably to be put into question, and we can continue to, to work it in the uh, in the way that they managed to work it over the summer with uh, remote participation and voting, with you know some hiccups along the way, but I think they're getting better with time. All right, Peter Grave has been with us, political science professor, McMaster University. Peter, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Stay well. And you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Obviously, you remember uh, us talking uh, at great length last year in regard to uh, the 737 MAX Boeing's plane where uh, there were uh, two uh, horrific crashes uh, killing 346 people. And it eventually led to the grounding of this new airplane. After an uh, 18-month investigation, a House panel has blasted Boeing and the FAA over these planes. uh, And uh, now, of course, uh, it'll be fascinating to see what the future of those planes are. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International, and he is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Good to be back with you. 
Uh, you're an aviation expert, Keith. Your thoughts on uh, how this has gone down over 18 months, and finally this final uh, this final decision that has been made. Well, we never expected that it would take this long, and the reality is it didn't. We've been doing a lot of things politically here to fill all the squares. Uh, the reality is that the uh, system hasn't changed very much, and it probably won't. The problem, basic problem, is that while Boeing used to be focused on engineering due to a number of changes, including uh, the purchase of McDonnell Douglas aircraft, they switched, and the management was from the bean counter end, and the emphasis has been on profit in the bottom line, and engineering has become secondary. And that was the basis of all our problems here. What had happened is that the company had uh, forced schedules on everyone. You had to perform and do everything within this period of time to get the product out on time. And if the engineering wasn't complete, well, they didn't seem to pay too much attention to that. Consequently, that attitude got them to where they are. And uh, they've made some changes. They uh, fired the president, the CEO, and put a new, another gentleman from the same board of directors in that spot. So to me, it's unclear whether or not we've actually cleaned anything up uh, management-wise at Boeing. One of the first things Boeing did when they acquired McDonnell Douglas was to uh, close the, uh, the head shed, the main office in Seattle, which was right next to where they built the airplanes, and move it to Chicago. So now if you're in management and you want to see what's going on on the shop floor, you get to fly from Chicago to Seattle instead of walking out your office door and going downstairs and taking a look and seeing what's going on. So I think that's hurt them a great deal. So uh, the FAA... You no, know, no, go ahead. Continue on, Keith. Okay, the FAA is taking a lot of heat on this because the FAA had to approve everything they did. And the way the FAA does this is they appoint what they call uh, designated uh, inspectors that are charged with making sure that the uh, uh, the procedures and things that they're designing and putting on the airplanes meet FAA standards. And there's been some question as to whether or not this has been compromised. Now, this whole system works very well throughout the industry, except it's based on trust. And if you can't trust what your inspectors are doing, your, your FAA representatives working there at Boeing, you're in big trouble. You're, you can't rely on the information you're getting. You can't rely on the product uh, being designed the way it, it was supposed to have been designed. So there's been so many compromises made here. It's going to take uh, a major restructuring uh, of company culture, I think, to correct this. You talked about this way back when, uh, Keith, when this, when the, when these accidents first happened, uh, that the FAA and Boeing working together as opposed to two separate entities and becoming too cozy, uh, with each other. Is, has anything, will anything change in that protocol? I mean, is it the, is it the FAA's fault? Is it Boeing's fault? Well, the way it works is the FAA doesn't have the budget or the uh, expertise in every area of engineering. And so they can't afford to go out and hire their own set of engineers who just hang out at the Boeing plant and look over everybody's shoulder and tell them they're not doing that right, you got to do it this way. Instead, they have designated 
uh, Boeing employees to actually be representatives of the FAA, and they've really got two hats on. They're they're working for Boeing as far as uh, getting the product out, but they're also certifying that, that what Boeing is doing meets the FAA standards and is safe. And somewhere along the line, this uh, this trust level has become compromised. And I, I think the the solution isn't to change the system completely, but to revise it enough so that trust is assured. Mm. And we can uh, work the system the way it was designed to operate and has in the past very well. Have enough changes been made in your mind, Keith, that this will not happen again? This We won't see this compromise again? Well, the focus has really been on recertifying these airplanes. And uh, the process has been uh, exceptionally long and detailed, and I question as to whether this was all necessary. Um, let's just say you're an FAA inspector now, and you have to go in and sign something off on this airplane. Well, you know, that's your job to do it, but look at the risk you're taking. If something should go wrong and it wasn't exactly right, or the engineers didn't explain it right, you're going to look like an idiot if there's an accident or even an incident that happens because it wasn't properly done. So there's a lot more pressure on everyone now. As this airplane gets back in the air, there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, media pressure. There's going to be a lot of people that don't want to ride it. Other people don't care. Other people don't know what they're riding on. So that's going to be part of the issue. Uh, the other major part is uh, the pandemic. Really, nobody needs the uh, airplanes right now. So a lot of them will probably, uh, orders will be canceled of the airplanes that will continue to sit on the ground. So I think the uh, the placing of the aircraft in the active fleet is going to take a little bit of time, and perhaps that will be a benefit. But eventually, as production continues on these things, uh, this problem of trust has got to be solved. We've got to be sure that engineers are allowed to do what they need to do without time constraints, if, uh, if something is so important that has to be done in the next uh, 30 days, then we have to give the manpower sufficient uh, attention to be sure that they can actually do what needs to be done and not rush engineering jobs to meet economic standards. So what about this plane itself, Keith? And again, you remember, we remember talking, you were explaining it to us, brand new plane re-engineering. We know with the MCAS system what made it go down and such. Then the you know they were all grounded and how you know what whatever they needed to do to make this plane safe is this plane fixed is that done is the plane now safe well in my opinion uh the plane basically was already safe all the way along if you flew it the way it was supposed to be flown and were properly trained in it you would recognize this runaway stabilizer immediately and shut it off Right. What happened is uh, the pilots didn't recognize the situation, and in their uh, defense, the reason was they were getting a lot more warnings than you would get with the old system, particularly when we had only the one angle of attack sensor. One side of the airplane would think it was uh, flying normally, the other side would think it was stalling, and it took a little bit of uh, uh, experience and knowledge to be able to spot what was actually happening. And the problems that resulted in the accidents 
is no one really realized this and time to correct it. In the case of the Ethiopian airplane, the pilots pushed the throttles all the way forward, and they were still at max power when the thing crashed. Had they just retarded the throttles and slowed the airplane down to where it should have been, it could have been saved very easily. But So we have a problem of system engineering that's bad, and also we have to have uh, people recognize the warnings that they're getting when these systems malfunction so that they don't do the wrong thing. So it's sort of, uh, they need both solutions to, to effectively make and keep the airplane safe so it can be operated the way it was designed to be in the environment all over the world where it's supposed to be used. So as we start to see, and this is going to take some time because obviously COVID has changed, you know, you think of the 737 uh, MAX crashes and where that ended up with Boeing and then following that with the pandemic, uh, you wonder how uh, they're going to survive. That being said, once things do pick up, do you, f- do you feel we will see this plane reintroduced into the fleet? Oh, I'm sure that we will. But I think Boeing will be even a bigger problem waiting in the wings, and that's the problems they've discovered recently with the 787. We have yet to see how that's going to manifest itself, but I think it's going to become important. And give us a little angle on that, on the 787. Well, the 787 has had some issues all along, particularly those constructed in uh, Charleston, and they've had issues where they found uh, tools in the uh, fuel tanks and things uh It should have been very obvious that weren't done properly. Airlines found them after the airplanes were delivered and complained. But right now, uh, there's a a different problem. A lot of the structure of the 787 is carbon fiber, carbon-type materials. And apparently, when they assembled some of these parts, they used excessive force to put them together. And Mm. Boeing isn't sure yet. They say that it's safe right now, but there could come a time when uh, uh, maybe it isn't safe. And this uh, is involving the horizontal stabilizer on these airplanes currently, but it uh, it may move to other parts of the aircraft as well. And carbon fiber certainly isn't as easy to repair as aluminum is. So I see a, a potential problem in the wings waiting there. Uh, in case they had to do major structural repairs on aircraft that they'd already delivered. So when you think uh, of the the MAX, uh, 737 MAX situation, and then you combine that with a pandemic, how bad shape is this company in? I mean, how can they survive this? I think it's going to be difficult. Uh, They definitely uh, are not in good shape. They've lost a lot of money. I think they've had, what, 938 Max orders canceled over the past year. They've delivered very few airplanes. Uh, they're in the position now, I think, with a lot of the airplanes that have already been built, that the uh, airlines aren't responsible to take delivery or to pay for them after a period of time when Boeing couldn't deliver an airworthy airplane. So I think that uh, I think that they've got their plate full, and they're yeah. uh, really going to have a difficult time. Keith Mackey has been with us. Mackey International, he is an airline consultant. Keith, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. You too. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.